The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. We have a very special treat today. We have Finn Rabin, who is the Director General of SMR. Finn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Seema. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I love the title Director General. I don't, I don't think we have that in the States. What, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, for, for, for my detractors, Seema, occasionally, you know, it's reminiscent of idiomine and all those sorts of things. But actually, it, it's, no more, uh, it's no more glorious than just kind of general manager or, or you know, managing director, basically. Got it. Got it. It sounds good. I like it. Um, Tell us, Finn, a little bit about SMR. I, I know it's a global organization, but I'd love just to share a little bit more about um, what SMR's mission is and, and people who join the organization. Kind of what are the high-level benefits? So um, SMR is a, it's a not-for-profit organization that was established in Europe in uh, what, 72 years ago, so just after the Second World War. That's amazing. And yeah, so, well, as you know, I have some gray hairs. Thankfully, it's not because I'm 72. But um, yeah, so we've been around a while. The, the organization was established by 28 company owners who recognized that the, the legislative and cultural landscape of Europe post-war would be quite a difficult one in which to guarantee standards of quality uh, and commitment to research standards generally. Okay. So those guys established this as a, an association, uh, made uh, a subscription to a code of conduct kind of compulsory for membership, um, but through that, therefore guaranteed all of their clients and buyers of research that those companies would adhere to this common, uh, common standard of excellence right across all of the regions in which they did research. And at that time, that would also include one or two companies in the U.S., Okay. We've, we've clearly evolved since then. The code of conduct has, has morphed more than one occasion uh, in order to keep up with the way the industry has changed and evolved over the last 70 years. And, and our role now is really to be, um, to advocate for, to promote, uh, and, and where necessary, defend the cause of, of data, of analytics, and of insights generally uh, right across the world. I think even in that, it's, it's morphed a little bit too because the, uh, the focus in previous years would have been very much around what is currently referred to as market research, but which implies a, a much greater focus on data collection. Whereas, of course, today there's so much data available digitally that you know, we do less collection and much more curation and compilation and analysis than ever before. So one of the things that I guess we've, you know, we now do, which we wouldn't have done, uh, you know, five or even 10 years ago, is we do an awful lot of representation to both the European Union government and indeed to national governments in association with our, with our national partners, which, you know, having been brought up a researcher was a whole new world of experience for me. Right, right. 
and and for so so in, it's it's a organization that helps um, trade organizations as well as governments kind of deal or educate with some of the challenges that we're dealing with as it relates to data. Absolutely. And, you know, goodness knows every day we're learning new challenges that come with the data world. So clearly we've got to try and, and get to grips with those, try and understand, you know, what the positives are, what the potential negatives are, what maybe the speed bumps are going to be, you know, using different kinds of data, both now and in the future. And as you say, educate and point those out to, to everyone who uses data. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible mission and, and very valuable. I'm always amazed when I hear about these organizations that have such a rich history, 72 years, and the foresight that those people had, those company owners had to say, let's band together and really, you know, create a unification in terms of standards for our industry. It, I, I know it sounds obvious, but it's always amazing. 72 years later and the organization's still evolving. Well, and you know, we, we we've just had the honor of hosting our twentieth anniversary conference in in Asia Pacific, and again, you know, a bunch of people who sat on our board of directors, uh, you know, twenty years ago, suddenly would have said, "Hey, it's really important that we get a presence and that we try to communicate the messages that we have espoused for so long into all the emerging markets and to all mm -hmm. the data centers that are that are coming up." So. So yes, you know, if, if only we can live up to that uh, yes. bar, we'll all be doing well, won't we? <laughs> that, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, Finn, let's, let's, let's talk about the industry. What's kind of your outlook on, on our industry? You mentioned, you know, it, we're, we're kind of going through this evolution of not just, you know, traditional market research, but uh, more compilation, more curation, and, you know, by the very nature of that, there's more technology in the industry, analysis. You know, how do you view kind of traditional market research coupled with all this new set, this, this new data that's being um, accessible to so many organizations? So, yeah, thanks for the easy question, I guess. <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I think the evolution of our industry has been one which has brought us from a position where we were traditionally the gatekeepers of information to um, the curators of information. I go back 10, 20, 30 years, getting information from citizens or for consumers had to be done in, in, you know, in most cases via a market research agency. And so the agency or the company was largely focused on extolling its its skills in being able to source that information and to collect it from the people involved and thereafter to ensure its validity and to its protection etc etc now with the advent of the internet and the fact that you know nearly everyone's default mechanism today is digital and whether that's your you know whether that's your smartphone whether it's your fridge whether it's you know Siri or Alexa there's there's a whole bunch of data floating around now you know exponentially greater than there ever was before so collection i guess is becoming an increasingly less important part of our business and you know, picking the right data to answer whatever question it may be, be it commercial, be it legal, be it societal, that becomes, if you like, the primary driver of our business. And it, it's in that shift from being very methodology focused as to how do I get this information from people that, that might be able to provide it to me, to look at, 
of of the millions of data points that are ahead of me and that here here in front of me, which ones do I pick and which are the right ones to pick in order to answer the question? That is where our skill set is now evolving, and but also where our responsibilities are evolving. And I think, you know, there's a common phrase that we are very data rich, but very insight poor. And so I, I think our industry still has a very bright future in as much as there will only be more data created and produced from the different systems. So having somebody who understands data and knows where to look for the right answers, I think will become an increasingly valuable, uh, you know, resource and asset. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your analogy of 10, 20 years ago, when research firms were, you know, the the ambassadors to kind of collect the data and and validate its 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 accuracy, you know, those same people are now have access to more data, and you still need to validate its accuracy and understand, you know, the the nuances of that data and pull together the entire story. It, it just seems to me, and again, I'm a person who where the glasses have full versus have empty. Um, you know we just have more data, which makes it even more interesting. Absolutely. Now, as you point out, you know, the applying the right level of rigor uh, and, and checking on the provenance of data yes. is as important today. In fact, it's probably more important today than it ever was before, because at least under the, you know, inverted commas, old fashioned uh, methods of data collection, there was a there were a set of controls that you could put in place to ensure that the, the data that you were collecting conformed to certain either statistical rigorous or or societal uh, parameters that you needed to to put in place now with the with the huge data i'm not sure there's a data lake data sea data galaxy <laughs> in, in front of us um you know the knowing galaxy. whether yeah well right <laughs> Knowing where the data comes from and how good it is has got to be your starting point. Absolutely. And I think one of the dangers, uh, is danger the right word? It might be too strong. But, mm. but one, of the, one of the concerns is that with so much data out there, the, you know, perhaps the data that first springs to your attention, which you may use to answer the question, may not necessarily be the right one for you. And you therefore run a risk of making some quite big decisions, be that within a company, you know, within a within a government, or indeed within a society, uh, of making decisions on on some quite tenuous data without necessarily putting in place the right checks to ensure that it is the data that you can make those decisions on. So true. I, I, I'm curious, Finn, from your perspective, um, how are brand organizations dealing with this change? Is it, you know, I, I would imagine culturally you know, there's some fundamental shifts that are happening in brand organizations because there's, there's the, you know, traditionally there's been silos of, of organizations and not in a bad way, but, you know, you have the customer data set, you have the data from digital marketing, you have um, third-party data. Are you seeing any, any kind of frameworks um, that are, that are evolving in brand organizations to be able to leverage the data across the organization? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that with the advent of any new resource, you you know, initially there's a, a supposition, maybe a hope or an aspiration. Yes. That all of those resources can be deployed at a much more cost-effective level than before, thus mm -hmm. reducing the cost burden on, on the company or, or the organization, the institution that is using that information. 
Um, a parallel might be, you know, 13, 15 years ago, when online data first came into the market research world, there was essentially a race to the bottom in terms of pricing because the the assumption was that with digital data available, it should be you know one tenth of the price of what was previously available, without people necessarily having the foresight. Talking about founders, that you know producing a good online sample is in many cases just as expensive as securing a good offline sample. And, and thus there were these kind of, you know, these, these peaks and troughs of usage and understanding of data. Um, I, I think the same still applies. Brand owners these days are quite clear that they can use, uh, you know, quick and I won't say dirty, but quick and easy information to provide them with a level of tactical guidance. Whereas perhaps, you know, five or six years ago, there might have been a suggestion that, for example, social media data can completely replace all brand tracking exercises throughout the world, I think there's now an understanding and a realization that that's not the case. And that you, you know, there is data that you can deploy at a tactical level or, or for small projects, which indeed is very easy to access, forms part of the, uh, the digital ecosphere. But equally, there's other data that if you're going to make a $25 million investment, you're probably not going to base that decision on a Twitter feed of 50 people. No, so it, it is kind of, um, you know, different strokes or different folks kind of thing. And, and it's that fit for purpose element, Seema, that I think is the one that is most important. And in, in many instances today in, in the technology world, you know, the fact that just data exists comes with the assumption that data is good enough for the question without going back to, whoops, hang on a minute, let's just apply a little bit of rigor and say, you know, am I indeed basing my $25 million investment on a, you know, on a 50 person Twitter poll or do I need something a little more substantial? I completely agree with you. And I, and I think the interesting point on that is, you know, that $25 million investment, although everybody wants to move really quickly and there's data that's accessible, it does take that rigor and kind of a stepping back to say, what is the right data that I need to use to be able to, you know, bet and take a risk on this investment? And at times, it might take a little longer. It's not as fast as sometimes uh, we we want it to be. And and I, I've definitely seen that as well, where, you know, the quick, not direct, quick kind of confirmational research is getting faster. But those other strategic investments at, that need research and support still takes time. And, and, and um, you know, sifting through the analysis to be able to really ensure that the decision you're making from that data is correct. Would you agree Absolutely. with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you, you and I chatted a little bit last week yes. around the, the sort of investment environment that exists nowadays. You know, if, if indeed the industry continues to evolve into a much more technology-based uh, resource, then the opportunities for investment and indeed the opportunities for reward will continue to grow. Uh, coming back to that point about you know, the more we exist nowadays, the more data we produce. And so therefore there's going to be an incremental demand on being able to manage all of that data, to analyze it, to curate it, you know, to report on it in, in a flexible and easy way. So I, I think the opportunities still remain, you know, very strong and, and we'll do so for a number of years to come. It's exciting.
It's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, just as well, isn't it? Because if we were, you know, if we were all bored, we wouldn't be doing this stuff. I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Totally agree. (laughs) Um, So you, SMR has published a paper and it's around the topic of who owns the data. Uh, Tell tell me a little bit more about that. So, I mean, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, as we as we move into an increasingly data rich world and, and predominantly a digital data world, that raises questions around you know, who whose resource is this? Uh, I'm, again, you know, a common phrase is that you know data is the new oil or data is the new gold, and and indeed, you know, most companies I think would agree that uh, you know the amount of information that is out there is vast. That they have huge amounts of it at their at their disposal, but and, and I guess this is the capital B U T. Mm-hmm. You know whose whose resource does is it actually, and and what responsibilities do we have with the data? And and I think this is where, you know, there's still an area that perhaps organisations like ours, and and I guess you know the the public at large, although they are becoming more sensitive to it, need to understand that you know information is that comes from them is, is theirs. It's yeah. just because you tell people what you do doesn't necessarily mean that who you've told it to then has complete and total rights over that information and, uh, you know, can do with it what they like. So we did a little piece of work to try and look at company perceptions of data, you know, whether indeed they felt it was a one of their strongest assets, and if it was, you know, what were their perceptions around, uh, you know, their responsibilities and, and what they had to do with it. You know, and, go ahead. Yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, do you, what, what were the highlights of the research? I mean, and, and did you see differences by geography? I'd be curious about that, because I think culturally, um, there's nuances in terms of perspective of ownership of data. I would imagine that's a hypothesis, but I'd be curious what you think. Well, so, I mean, the piece of work, which we ran, by the way, in conjunction with a company called Cadence, who were okay. very kind enough to, to provide the fieldwork capabilities for us. Um, we ran it across 300 companies in, in English-speaking markets. That was essentially the US, UK, and a couple of companies in Singapore. Okay. Um, and, I mean, generally, it was quite clear that companies felt that data, the, the, the majority of companies felt that once they brought data in-house, it was theirs to use as they wished. Uh, yet on the same time, you know, more than half the companies were fully recognizant of the fact that the controls and the protections that they had around that data were simply insufficient mm. in this day and age. And, and that was kind of the scary bit for us yes. to say, okay, you know, this is clearly stuff that, you know, because everyone gets onto a, onto a PC and, you know, they accept the cookies and, you know, so as a user, you tend not to think about where all of this data ends up. And, uh, you know, it, it's clear from these kinds of findings that, you know, websites like Google or Facebook or mm-hmm. Amazon or indeed Alibaba. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are these are data collection vehicles on an industrial scale. So, yes. I mean, the, the information that they're gathering from us is vast. And, and where is it? And what's happening with it? And is it being sold? And, you know, one of the reasons we did this piece of work was to try and get a little bit of an understanding around the new data legislation that was, mm-hmm. that was around. So for us, this was quite instructive. And, I, you know, we've shared this report now with, with all of our company members to say, look, uh, just in case you thought, you know, when somebody gives you data, it's yours to use with as you see fit. Uh-uh, think twice. There's probably a little bit more work you've got to do with it. 
Fair enough. I, I think it's a. I think it's great that um, you actually have real data that cites and points to the fact that uh, what companies' perceptions are about the data they collect. And you know, I I, I see a lot more conversations around data governance within organizations, right? And the the ethics around, you know, what can we use without telling a consumer versus what what should we not use? And those lines are so gray. Um, and it, and it, that feels daunting in terms of sorting all that out. Yes. I mean, you know, the so in two interesting perspectives here. Sure. One, if if data is indeed one of your assets, mm-hmm. then you should be as respectful of it as your gold bullion or your cash in hand or whatever, yeah. right? Yes. The the other side is that there is a there is an increasing tension, I think, at the moment, Seema, between what people believe innovation and and company progression or organizational progression needs to be based upon and what their responsibilities are to data. The largely, I think there is a supposition that you know innovation can only come through the surreptitious use and deployment of information rather than being open and honest about it. Interesting. Yep. And, and I think you know I, that may be intentional, it may not be intentional. But I think there is a view that says, oh, we've got this fantastic data source here. Let's go play with it and find out what we can do without necessarily thinking, well, hang on, do the guys that I collected that data from, are they aware that I'm going to be doing this or that I'm going to be selling them something on afterwards? And that is indeed, as you point out, where the governance questions begin to crop up and where the ethics of using data suddenly become, you know, a little more kind of sensitive than they may have been in the past. So it, what advice, Finn, would you give to organizations today, knowing what you know about, um, you know, the, the perception of data and um, concerns about privacy? If they were to, you know, think about it from their organizational perspective, what's the kind of the key message you would share with them? So maybe I can start, Seema, with just by giving a, just by telling another little story. Um, sure. At our Congress last year in Berlin, we, we got a presentation from a company called Here, okay. uh, in, who, who presented in conjunction with an agency called Buzzback, and they were, uh, they were clearly concerned about privacy within the mm-hmm. data. What does Here do? Here collects the beacon data from your mobile phone uh, in order to update and create GPS systems for vehicles and that sort of thing. Got it. Uh, so they did a piece of work where they spoke to a, a bunch of their data contributors and split them into two. And to one group, they, they said absolutely nothing. And to the other group, they told them absolutely everything that they were going to do with their data. Interesting. Now, the group to whom they told everything were twice as likely to provide information than the group that they told nothing to. So the this kind of myth that you have to do stuff surreptitiously is, is knocked on the head a little bit by that piece of work. And, and we're very grateful that actually both those two companies here and Buzzback are doing a follow-up piece of research this year, which we hope to, uh, which we hope to produce at Congress in Edinburgh in September. Sure. To talk about the next phase of that and how ultimately that has, you know, has implications for businesses. So the advice really is, you know, there is no need to be surreptitious. Mm-hmm. Be open, be transparent. In many cases, being, uh, uh, you know, uh, forgive me for using that awful four-letter word, but 
you know, in Europe, we have this thing called the GDPR, the General yes. Data Protection <laughs> Regulation, which is, is not dissimilar, by the way, to the, you know, the California Consumer Privacy Act. Right. But in, in many cases, being compliant with those laws requires only a very, very small change in your practices. You know, mm -hmm. hi, Seema, do you mind, I'd like to get this information from you. And would you mind if I used it to uh, contribute to my innovation lab? Right. Yes, done. You're in, you're compliant, no problem. And it's that simple in many cases. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, the GDPR, by the way, is a 95 long page document. Yes. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, unless you're suffering from insomnia, I, I wouldn't suggest necessarily reading from cover to cover. It's not the latest bestseller. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm simply trying to articulate sure. that it, it's not always as daunting as yeah. it is made out to be even though clearly for some industries and, and for some users of data, uh, you know, the changes that they will have to make would be considerably greater. Many of those are the tech giants of today, whom as we all know, kind of get into the news on an all too frequent basis for perhaps doing things that they just shouldn't Should have not been. be doing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that I agree. Sometimes we overcomplicate things and it could be as simple. It could be as simple as being open and transparent to consumers about the use of their data. Um, Finn, you, you refer to GDPR. We're now a year in. Um, what are your thoughts about its, um, its effectiveness and, and have you seen, have you seen things change? Ah, wow, there's another $64,000 question. Um, so it's effectiveness in terms of policing data behavior, mm -hmm. I, I think, is still to be seen. Okay. Uh, mainly because, you know, the GDPR is, is quite interesting in as much as it has its own police force. So every country has a data protection agency mm -hmm. whose role it is to enforce the, the requirements of that, of that data protection regulation. Not all laws necessarily have a dedicated agency to, to do that. Now, since the GDPR has been instituted as law, and remember, by the way, it's been law for over three years, but you know, everyone got a two-year kind of, yes. uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? you know, kind of free period like to, to get all of that, yeah, yeah, to, to get yeah. all that stuff sorted out before it became, uh, you know, um, prosecutable, if you like. Yes. Um, since it's become prosecutable, I think there have been just under 100,000 complaints uh, across Europe to the different okay. data protection agencies. How many of those have they been able to resolve or to, uh, you know, even to, uh, to investigate? not as many as, as, the, as the number of complaints, that's quite clear. And I think there have only been 11 or 12 fines, albeit that one of them was a $50 million fine, uh, you know, laid at the doorstep of Google by, by France. The, so how effective has it been in terms of policing? I, I think the data protection agencies never had the resources available to, you know, to really be able really to kind of ride out in their hordes yeah. on horseback with their six guns loaded. I, I think they were, I, I don't think they were truly prepared for the amount of interest there would be in the legislation. On the other hand, I think it has, it has raised the awareness of what we should be doing with data in terms of a, in terms of governance and of ethics far higher than anyone probably would have anticipated. 
And, and in that regard, it's interesting to see that many other countries have started to put in place legislation which offers a level of equivalency to what, that, to what the GDPR requires. Yeah, I mean, look, most businesses these days are global. There, there are very few businesses that, you know, apart from small corner shops, perhaps, mm -hmm. that operate just within their own market. So everybody, or most everyone, is probably using European data somewhere in their system. Right. And if they've got European data, then they've got to be GDPR compliant. And, and I think that has prompted a, a much greater rethink of, of what are my responsibilities to data. Thankfully, you know, it kind of makes our job a little bit easier in terms of trying to, to push that message out. I completely agree. I mean, I, I think it, it is, uh, it's ra raised awareness. It's raised, it's sparked conversations. It's, you know, uh, that in itself, I think is really important because it, it you kind of have to check yourself and say, wait a second, are we GDPR compliant here? Um, so from that perspective, I think, you know, whether you call it a success or not, it's just important uh, that it's top of mind, especially in this day and age where the data is so easily accessible. Exactly. And I mean, you know, when you look at the when you look at some of the um, the initiatives that are coming out of companies like Microsoft. Yes. I, I think there, too, there is a there is an awareness that that data comes from people and that, you know, we we should respect people and therefore we should respect the data. And if you if you offer that respect and, and offer a an undertaking to to protect that, uh, you know, that gift, if you like, of information that people get. And, and, and by the way, just that I don't, you know, begin to sound too much like a, a priest from a pulpit. And <laughs> not everybody does that. So, you know, quite yeah. clearly there, there are markets with much, very different laws around what can and cannot be done with information. So I, please don't think that I'm wearing a, you know, a white collar sure. in, in preaching this stuff. Yes. But, but the evidence is, is getting increasingly obvious that if you do, if you do reciprocate the respect towards data, you can do far more with it than actually if you try to do something surreptitiously, uh, because you know, as in the cases of, you know, Cambridge Analytica mm -hmm. or of things like like Brexit, there can be very damaging results from from the manipulation of data if it's not if it's not open and honest. So true, Finn. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, it's a pleasure. See many I appreciate times. It. Thank you. And uh, definitely would love to have you back on the, on the podcast in the future and catch up again. Look forward to it. Many, many thanks. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.